I'd like to ask you to join me in praying for God's help, and I'm mindful too with Tuesday being a national election, local elections, everything in between. Uh, It's certainly a time for us to pray. And you know, God has given us uh, His truth and wisdom to know how to pray in moments like these, and one of those passages is found in 1 Timothy 2. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but it is something that's been on my heart, and it is part of the, the prayer that uh, I'm going to pray now and would invite you to join me as we ask for God's blessing over our land and over our time in the Word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have taught us to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions of authority. We pray to that end that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in your sight as our God and Savior. You are the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and we're mindful that when a nation is stirred up, when a community is fearful or alarmed or distressed, it is sometimes difficult for them to focus on what matters eternally, difficult for them to hear the gospel. And our desire is that you would bring our nation to the place where it could hear your words of truth as they are preached and taught, as they are broadcast and televised, as they are printed in books and posted online. Your desire is that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth There is great confusion in our world today as to who you are, as to the nature of the human race, but in your word you reveal to us that there is only one God. The Apostle Paul wrote, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. and This is the testimony given through the ages. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Would you open our hearts to receive that truth? And would you open the hearts of our friends and neighbors right here around us, the ones that we love so dearly, many of whom feel great distress on this day, great fear, the unknowns of the future, what will happen economically, what will happen politically. God, you are the only hope for this land. We feel a great responsibility and privilege before us, and yet at the same time we feel uncertainty even with respect to the coming election. Many here in this place even wonder, who can I vote for? Who should I vote for? Should I even vote? And person to person and community to community, community to community, there is, there is great turmoil God, we are in need of your intervention. Mercy, because we are a wicked nation. Grace, because we are guilty of defying you and living in rebellion. We are in need of your compassion, because we are miserable by the choices we have made and what we have engaged in. But all throughout your word, we see you revealing yourself as the God of mercy and grace and compassion, a God who heals and restores, a God who rescues and saves. Our hope is not in a candidate or a political party. Our hope does not rest in some economic plan or strategy. 
Our hope is in you, the only God, the one God. And we ask that you would hear us as we cry on behalf of our communities. Lord Jesus, you are the great King. We ask that you would establish your perfect and holy dominion in the hearts of each one of us. Spirit of God, would you convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Do all of your holy work in us that we may be revived and renewed and empowered. We ask that you would revive your church throughout this land. That you would bless the preachers and teachers who lift up Jesus Christ today whether it be in classrooms or in assembly halls, whether it be behind pulpits or lecterns, whatever the occasion and setting may be, let the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed in power with your blessing on it. We think of local churches around us and ask that you would give grace to Ben at Lifestone as he lifts up the name of Jesus, to Rob at South Mountain and Mike over at Harvest Valley Doug at Mid-Valley and Matt at Crossroads and Wayne over at Berean. And there are others, Lord God, who are dear to us for Christ's sake. And would you please strengthen their hearts, enliven and awaken their minds, even that sanctified imagination that they may be able to proclaim Christ as he is. And as the truth is proclaimed, would you bring down every stronghold that is raised against him, every vain imagination, every false notion concerning Jesus Christ, let him be known and seen and heard and experienced as he is. God's anointed one, the unique and only Son of God. And we ask that we may see him here in this place, in this little bit of time we have together. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'll be glad, as I'm sure you will, when the mailbox is not stuffed with all kinds of flyers, recommendations as to who to vote for. And uh, being new to Utah, a lot of these uh, political personalities are unknown to us. So in some ways, I feel like I've paid a little more attention because I don't have some of the you know, reliable ones running for local office or state or even on the national scene. But I got to tell you, it's always a little bit of a conflict to know who to vote for, isn't it? You weigh the pros and cons, and you try to listen to the speeches that are made or watch the debates, and you try to figure out who's going to be best. And we know there's not a perfect leader, but I wonder this morning, what, you know, what's your criterion for judging a leader? What kind of attributes or characteristics of a leader are appealing to you? And I suppose if we were to take a little time and brainstorm and just throw some things out, we, we might start saying things like, well, first of all, I'd like someone who's a, a, a candidate of character. like to see some integrity. like to see some common sense. It's one of our frustrations, isn't it? We all nationally vote for these local politicians, and, and sometimes we have great hopes, and it's like they, they all gather in Washington, and something weird happens. It's like we just lose our minds in that city. So we would say things like honesty, trustworthiness, courteousness, kindness. It'd be nice to see some gentlemen and gentlewomen at the helm. We have all kinds of things that come into our mind, but there's one thing 
that I think is absolutely essential. It's something we both fear and desire would be present, and that has to do with authority. Because at the end of the day, a person of character who doesn't actually have influence and power to enact even good ideas or great vision is useless. And there needs to be more than just kind of a legislative authority that says, well, the law gives them the right, they're going to do it. I mean, there has to be something within them personally that says that person will get the job done. You know, we've been studying Mark's gospel, and last week Matt actually preached uh, a portion where Jesus calls individuals to follow him. And this whole issue of authority arises in a really quite remarkable fashion. Jesus, who prior to this point in in history is largely unknown, coming from an obscure city, a little town really called Nazareth. And and it has such a, a, a poor reputation that when one of the disciples hears that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming from Nazareth, he just says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, what? who comes from Nazareth? But Jesus comes and he begins to issue a call to people like Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he says, follow me. Follow me. And as Matt reminded us last week, we actually saw men who left established businesses. James and John leave their father with the fishing business. Peter and Andrew walk away from what was apparently a successful fishing business, and they begin to attach themselves to this new teacher. Some would refer to him as a rabbi. Others would say he's a great prophet. A lot of people have questions about Jesus, but they themselves have to, have to see something taking place there that is compelling to them to risk some things. And one of the things that emerges right away is that he has an unusual authority. Now, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, and if you're using one of the Bibles there from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find Mark. Uh, chapter 1 on page 836 of your, of your uh, copy of the Bible. And by the way, if you do not own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take one of these copies that are, that are right there in those seat racks. We'll resupply them. We've, we've ordered, made a couple different orders over the last several months, and we'll be happy to keep doing that. I, I would love for you to have a Bible. Gospel Hope would love for you to have a Bible, so take one with you, please. So in Mark 1... Uh, I'd like to begin reading uh, in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, that is Peter, and Andrew, with James and John. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she, <clears throat> and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various de diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You know, all of that happened in one day. One day, one Sabbath, which is Saturday on our calendar, but that's the holy day of the week that the Jewish people have set aside according to the teaching and command of God, a day of rest, a day where they would lay aside all the work and they would gather in assembly halls like this synagogue. Now, a synagogue is different from a temple. Uh, a temple is where a high priest would perform his important ministry. Sacrifices would be offered, but not so in a synagogue. And this synagogue was located in the city of Capernaum. Now, you need to know a little bit about Capernaum. It was a very significant seaside town, a, a rather large city for that particular day and age. And according to historians and those who have have studied out the archaeological evidence and the writings from that particular age, it was large enough that it actually supported a detachment of Roman troops. There was a customs post there, and that'll be very significant in chapter 2 when Jesus calls another disciple. And they even uh, estimate that the population at that time was about 10,000 people. So this synagogue would have been a fairly significant gathering and assembly place. Uh, archaeological evidence indicates that in the first century, there was a significant harbor that had been built. And this is on the northwestern corner and rim of the Sea of Galilee. Um, that particular harbor extended along a 2,500-foot promenade. And along, that, along this promenade, an 8-foot seawall, there would have been extending from it piers up to 100 feet in length into the lake. So this is a, this is a port city. Uh, it's also located on one of the main, main trade routes from southern Israel to northern Israel and actually even beyond. Uh, the Egyptian uh, trade route would have come all the way up through this particular region, gone uh, far north into Damascus uh, and, and even beyond. Capernaum was a border town between the tetrarchies of Philip and Herod. Roman rulers in that particular day. And so the, the, the area was alive with economic activity, with labor from fishing to farming. Uh, there was quite an artistic community that was there, merchants and officials, and as noted just a moment ago, even tax collectors. It was quite a location for Jesus to set up his ministry. And so the synagogue, a meeting place, would have functioned much like a large auditorium. And on this particular day, Jesus comes and he stands up to teach. Now, that would have been a common practice because in these assembly halls, there wasn't you know, one particular priest or prophet or, or preacher, as we might have in our particular day, who took the lead. But the responsibilities of reading Scripture and teaching were shared. And in those particular days, it would have been the scribes who took the lead, and, and they're going to be really significant uh, in the story in just a moment. So each Sabbath, the people would gather to hear the Word of God read, and in particular, it was the Torah. Now, the Torah is a term that has specific reference to the writings of Moses, 
And over time, it broadened out a little bit, so it would include the Old Testament. But by the first century, when Jesus begins to uh, conduct his earthly ministry, the Torah was not simply the law of Moses or the Old Testament scriptures as God had given uh, his word through the prophets and writers of old, but it had actually come to include quite a large body of human tradition, oral traditions, traditions that had been passed down by the revered scribes and elders in Israel. And it was the type of thing that had become so mixed and mingled that it was difficult for many people to distinguish the difference between the word of God and the tradition of men. Now, Jesus is going to say a lot more about this, and when we come to Mark 7, we're going to read a very plain and open confrontation that he has with the scribes and Pharisees, but this is one of those initial moments where he stands and he begins to correct the aberrant teaching, he begins to correct the error and distortion that people had introduced, and he preaches and teaches the Word of God. Now, look at verse 22 with me. And this is where the, the story begins to focus on this particular point of teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This, this word and idea of authority is going to run all through the book of Mark, and it's a really important question for us to ask. Who is Jesus and what kind of authority does he have in my life? And this is part of the way that Mark answers that question for us. The authority he speaks of is the power of right and the power of might. The way authority was used in that particular day would typically designate a supernatural authority. And there are other writers and pieces of literature that you can go to to see that when people used this terminology or spoke of authority, they were thinking in terms even of a supernatural authority. And Jesus' authority is a significant theme throughout Mark's gospel that is being introduced to us here. Now, notice the contrast to Christ's teaching. Because Mark doesn't actually give us the content. I think it's safe to assume that Jesus is probably teaching a similar uh, message to what he has uh, just recorded in verses above this. Jesus saying back in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we know that that's kind of the, that's the summary statement of the type of teaching and preaching that Jesus was doing. So while Mark doesn't give us the specific content, he says, it's not as the scribes. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament and you begin to explore a little bit about the scribes, they weren't always bad. They weren't always teaching things that were just a matter of their own opinion or their own tradition. As a matter of fact, there are some wonderful examples of scribes who were faithful to God. Ezra is the first one that comes to mind and maybe the greatest example. In the prophecy that is titled with his own name, Ezra uh, chapter 7, verse 6, we read of him. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, typical of a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then you read in verse 10 that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, that is, so he's practicing what he's studying and then teaching his statutes and rules in Israel. He was a faithful scribe. 
He didn't teach out of his own experience. He didn't teach out of his own opinions or ideas. He was a diligent student of God's word, wanted to know what it said, and then faithfully distributed it to the people who were sitting under his ministry. Now, in Jesus' day, many viewed the scribes as possessing some esoteric enlightenment, one author writes. And and so they were viewed as being highly authoritative. And their, uh, listen to what this author writes, their erudition... There's a big $10 word. And prestige reached legendary proportions by the first century, surpassing on occasion that of the high priest. These are are powerful religious leaders. Commoners deferred to scribes as they walked through the streets, and the first seats in the synagogues were reserved for scribes, and people rose to their feet when they entered a room. So just imagine if we were back in that day that we might say, you know, this first row is reserved for the scribes. And they might actually wait until everybody else had come in and found seats and kind of jockeyed for position. And as they came in, we would probably all stand and, you know, with this kind of holy hush, just look at them as they, you know, made their way up to the front and took their seats. You can imagine that that would be a little bit of an imposing scene. It would also be a little bit of an imposing scene if it was your turn to stand up and read the scriptures and comment on them. And Mark doesn't give us great details, so I want to be very careful here, but it's in that kind of a setting with those kinds of scribes that are present that Jesus stands and begins to teach, and immediately the people who hear him teaching say, there's something different about this man and his teaching. And the reason is immediately apparent to us when we consider that the scribes in that day were no longer practicing and teaching God's law as Ezra had done four to five hundred years before, or other faithful scribes as the past. No, turn over to Mark 7 with me. We're getting ahead of our study a little bit, but I think this is important just to listen to the words of Jesus as he describes what these scribes were doing in that particular day. Mark 7, verse 8. Now, the Pharisees are included in this, but the Pharisees and scribes are before him, and Jesus says to them, you leave the commandment of God. That is, you have departed from it, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. They're replacing the word of God with their tradition. Verse 10, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban. And that's a term that just means I've given it to God. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. Would love to help pay the rent this month, but I gave my money to God because I'm really spiritual. I'm trying to give you a little sense of of what they were saying. Jesus goes on, verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So So the scribes were complicit in this evil, participating, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
Well, that's the context into which Jesus comes and begins to teach a message that has a totally different kind of feel. And in the assembly, they recognize immediately that he's actually teaching with authority that the scribes are not teaching with. And you know the difference? Many of you would recognize this innately. It's the difference between hearing the word of God preached and taught as God gave it and just listening to somebody give kind of a TED talk. And there's helpful information, especially when you listen to experts. And I'm, I'm fascinated by some of the TED Talks. I don't, I don't watch them on YouTube regularly, but occasionally I'll just pop one on. And, and I just, I'm just curious. Love to hear the experts speak. But that kind of teaching doesn't carry the same weight as when a, 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 a man of God, a servant of God, stands in an assembly like this and opens the Word of God, gets out of the way of the Word of God, and like a good table waiter, just serves it and says, this is the Word of the Lord. It's not my word, it's not my opinion, I'm not here to try to foist my traditions on you. We want to know what the word of God is. There's a difference, isn't there? And these people saw it. The scribes have no Pharisee uh, or have no uh, authority, because like the Pharisees, they are experts in God's word and law to a degree, but they have not taken it into their hearts and they have replaced God's word ultimately with their traditions. Our day and age is no different, is it? Can you think of religious systems that have actually either replaced the word of God by human tradition and teaching? Or others who don't outright replace it, but they sure add to it, don't they? Some of you were in religious systems like that at one point. And you were taught that what the elders or the you know, great leaders of the past or the former preachers stood up and said is what you should believe. Some of you were even taught that you can't really trust the word of God so trust your priest, or trust your religious ruler, the leader of our group. He'll tell us what to think. You know, this kind of teaching ultimately destroys us personally, and it destroys any church or assembly or gathering. And there's a kind of religious deadness that takes over when the Word of God is replaced or even added to. A true prophet, a true scribe, a true teacher, a true preacher will never contradict God's Word as it is revealed in the Old and the New Testaments. And there are many religious leaders and teachers, even in our day, who speak as if they have authority. But when you compare what they are teaching to what the Bible reveals to us, you find out it's just their opinion. And this is why it is important that we personally be students of this book, that we actually read the Bible for ourselves, that we pray not simply for some kind of warm uh, feeling of spirituality, some, some kind of esoteric affirmation, but that we pray that God by His Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds to know His truth, to understand His Word, that we may believe it and live by it. By His authoritative te teaching, Jesus is actually delivering people from the power of dead 
religious tradition. That's what he's beginning to do, and it gives all of us great hope. I ask at this point before we move on, are you a person of the word? Are you reading this for yourself? Are you studying it? I know our schedules are busy, it's challenging, and, and, and I don't think the Lord himself expands you to, expects you to just spend hour upon hour, day after day. I mean, we have jobs to work, we have families to take care of, we have a, a church family that we are actively a part of, all kinds of things, but are you in the Word? I'm honored that so many of you would say, we, we want to hear what you pastors here at Gospel Hope have to teach, but you know what, I'm not Jesus. I'm like a table waiter. My job is to serve his word to you. I don't create his word. Are you a person who's in the word? Second of all, are you a person who is seeking to follow Jesus and submitting to his teaching? Or are you just looking kind of for a place to park it and get involved in some kind of religious tradition that and teaching that makes you just generally feel good. Jesus has authority that delivers us from the power of dead religious tradition. Here's the second thought for you. Look at verse 23. Immediately, Matt told us last week, this word immediately is used all throughout the book of Mark, and it's 10 or 11 times here in this one chapter. So Mark is writing, writing with a sense of, so this is what happened, and then this happened. So what's the next thing that happens? Well, this is also going to reveal some of Jesus' authority to us. Immediately, that is, as he's teaching with authority, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Well, this is the first point of antagonism to Jesus' authoritative teaching. An unclean spirit speaks out. I don't know if you've ever encountered anything quite like this. I can't say that I've had an experience just like this, but there have been other moments where it's obvious the, the, the forces of darkness are present. But you can imagine if somebody just stood up in this place right at this moment and, and began to engage me with a conversation that was clearly antagonistic, everybody would be very uncomfortable, wouldn't you? Mark uses this term unclean spirit 11 times, and six of those occur in, in two stories, and this is one of those two significant stories. In the New Testament, as one author writes, the, these individuals are frequently called unclean spirits because having lost their original purity, they, they were once angels, but they rebelled with Satan, and so they fell from that position of glory this author goes on to say, they have become unclean themselves and through their solicitations have polluted mankind with all uncleanness and every abomination which the Lord hates. So it's a, it's a person, a human being like you or me who has been so dominated by this unclean spirit that while he's kind of like the host for this, it's actually a secondary presence, the unclean spirit who's speaking out at this moment. And this is not uncommon as we'll see at, in the course of the story that apparently there were many who were demonically oppressed and influenced. Isn't it interesting that the unclean spirit is speaking out immediately in response? Crying out is what Mark says. And you should know this is a response of fear and subordination. We know that in part because then he, he poses two questions for Jesus. What have you to do with us? That is, what do we have in common here? It, it's almost as if the demon is saying, why are you here? This is our place. This is our territory. 
And, and it's interesting to think along the lines of who are the us? Is the demon referring to other unclean spirits who are present? Or is he actually in, in such spiritual alliance with the false teaching in the synagogue and, and what traditions, deadly traditions, would be represented by the scribes that he's speaking as an ally of them? I don't know. I don't think it's crystal clear for us which it is, but it is interesting that Jesus is in a place where there has been dead tradition being preached and foisted on the people, and there's also a demonic presence. Now look at the next phrase, because this is evidence of the unclean spirit's fear of Jesus' authority. Have you come to destroy us? And he uses a term that refers to eternal death and future punishment. It's not simply that Jesus has come to establish his presence in opposition to demons to make life uncomfortable for them, but this unclean spirit recognizes that this is the one who has the power to utterly destroy him and cast him into hell forever. Jesus makes reference to this kind of authority in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, verse 28, when he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy, there's our term, both soul and body in hell. You know, that horrific scene is prophesied of in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 20. You can read that full account where those who have died without Jesus Christ are resurrected from the dead and all others who have lived in rebellion, and I think that the devil and unclean spirits like this one in Mark 1 would be included, and the scene is horrific because there comes a moment when, as John the Apostle describes, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and this unclean spirit knows exactly where he's headed and knows there is an appointed time and his worst fear has just surfaced at this moment that this one who has come and teaches with an authority unlike anybody else's teaching has the authority to destroy him forever. It's quite a grim scene for the unclean spirit. And for this demon and legions more, Jesus' arrival and announcement of his kingdom does not include an invitation for them to be saved. Have you thought about that? There's no record in the New Testament where Jesus says to an unclean spirit, repent and believe the gospel. But that is the message Jesus is speaking to sinful people like us. The same destruction that this unclean spirit fears has now come upon him is the destruction that the word of God says will come upon all who reject the invitation of Jesus Christ. But my friend, the fact that you are in an assembly like this today is testimony that God in his love and mercy has not come to judge you and destroy you as he will all rebel ones one day but rather that in love and mercy he has come, even through the weak and imperfect preaching of someone like me, to say, oh, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Be saved. And so there are still two options for you. There's only one option for this unclean spirit. The only question for him is, is today the day? Or is tomorrow. But for you, 
there is an opportunity to repent and believe. You need not fear a day of destruction such as the unclean spirit is referring to or, or such as we read of in Revelation, Revelation 20. If you would turn from your sin and believe the good news, you would be saved, not destroyed. Well, we read on and look at the verification of Jesus' authority. This unclean spirit testifies to his true identity. He's referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth, but then he goes on to say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon not only acknowledges the true identity of Jesus, but testifies to this distinction between himself and this Holy One. He's an unclean spirit, and in the presence of this perfectly holy one, he is absolutely vulnerable. He is exposed in all of his evil and corruption and the defilement that marks his existence, but he knows this is God's holy one. There will be at least two other occasions where unclean spirits will testify to the divinity of Jesus Christ quite remarkable that they should be witnesses. They hate him. They despise him. They don't want to be in his presence. They know what their destiny is, but they still, at this point, though, though they are liars and deceivers, when they are in the presence of God, they actually become truth speakers. It's irony, isn't it? Now look at the exercise of Jesus' authority. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The word rebuke is very strong. It's actually the, a command that carries a threat. He rebukes him. And the little phrase, be silent, literally, tie it shut. There's more force and it's more sanctified than this, but I was going to say kids, most of them are out of the room. There are a few still left here, but your parents ever say, zip it. That's a little phrase that comes out sometimes, isn't it? You know, in our household, if, uh, if mom says, zip it, conversation's done. It's over. Better be. Or you're going to be in worse trouble. That's hardly fair. Kristen's sick today, by the way. She's not even here to defend herself. She is, she is typically very kind, very gracious. But we all reach our limits, don't we? Sometimes, which is like, we don't want to hear it anymore. And you know what? Jesus, it's not just that he's impatient with the Spirit, but he, he actually has a greater purpose and mission. It's interesting. He's actually going to tell several people, not just unclean spirits, but like, don't speak of this right now. Because he's on his own mission, and he will reveal himself and everything about himself in his time, in his way, when he desires. And this is not the time for him to be revealed fully seems counter to our thinking at this particular point, but Jesus is absolutely in control. And he says to this unclean spirit, shut it. And then he says, come out of him. Now we need to notice something here that in the Bible, and Mark's gospel will be consistent with this, um, in the Bible, as one scholar writes, driving out evil spirits is not a magical rite needing the use of spells and names, as in other religions, but the bringing of the good news of Jesus to the person concerned. And Jesus is bringing himself right there. So the conversation is with the unclean spirit, but the man uh, in whom the unclean spirit is uh, occupying 
territory at this particular moment, that, that man is going to reap great benef- great benefit. And Jesus has come out of him. And that's exactly what the unclean spirit does. Oh, he makes a last little rebellious move because the text says he convulsed the man. That is, he has a, a bit of a seizure. But then the spirit cries out one last time with a loud voice. And so while he's throwing this man into spasms, he is at the same time crying out in submission. He cannot lay claim to this man any longer. He cannot lay claim to anything but what Jesus, the great king and holy one, the sovereign one of the ages, would allow him to possess. He comes out of the man. And the response is exactly what Jesus commanded at the very moment Jesus commands it. The spirit has no choice but to surrender to Jesus. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of darkness does not possess authority to resist this one. Now look at verse 27, the response to Jesus' authority. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? And notice they connect both of these, the teaching and this uh, deliverance. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And that's a key little phrase. They obey him. What kind of king is this? What kind of teacher is this? What kind of man is this? A man with authority that should be obeyed. That's what Mark's getting at. So Jesus is revealing his authority over dead religious tradition and demonic spiritual oppression. And this is the kind of authority that compels us to follow him. This is the kind of leader we want. He has many characteristics that are admirable and desirable in a leader, but he actually has the power to do the kind of stuff we want to see done. You know, several years ago, Kristen and I had a really wonderful privilege of watching firsthand the Lord Jesus deliver a woman, a friend of ours, and to this day is a a very dear friend in part because of what we went through, but to deliver her from some really ugly and terrifying satanic activity. And you know, it's not something a lot of us talk about. And I think there are good reasons for that sometimes, but there are occasions where you need to talk about it. And, and we began to work with this couple, and they, they had a number of um, challenges, some of which, the most significant, were of a, a marital kind, just conflict. And when she f- first began to talk with Kristen some about what was going on, she didn't mention this side of it, but shared some other things. We're like, well, you know what? That's an issue, and that's sin, and you should repent of that, and we need to change that. And I began to talk with the husband, and we just spent time talking and praying and working through some things. And then there came a conversation in, in my memory, and I hope I have this accurate, that the, the setting is, um, is accurate, that I think the four of us were together. But she began to share how demonic uh, entities, demons, um, had been harassing her and intimidating her, uh, appearing to her in the middle of the night, several, several stories uh, that were you know, a little hair-raising. And, and she was so hesitant, and as she told all that was going on, then she said, I'll bet you think I'm crazy, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. We don't, because we, we could tell similar stories. And she said, are you serious? I'm not, you don't think I'm crazy? And I said, no. Furthermore, the Bible tells us we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. I mean, the cosmic forces of darkness. That's Ephesians 6. And then we began to just share some simple scriptures. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. 
we began to talk about the power of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, and in particular, the shed blood that flowed from that cross that not only cleanses away our sin uh, and removes our guilt, but becomes a, a powerful, sanctifying uh, uh, presence for us, washing us, cleansing us, setting us apart. And we just began to share some things, not minimizing what had happened, but not overblowing it. And it's not like, you know, the pastors have some little secret potion that they pull out or, you know, some little box of, you know, special devices that we, you know, dump out on the desk and pray these, you know, incantations. No, that's, that's hocus pocus. We invoke the name of Jesus Christ. We invoke the power of his blood to cleanse and protect and keep. We bring the power of Jesus and his gospel to bear upon a life. I don't recall if she said they had any occasions after that, but I do know that Jesus Christ brought his authority to bear upon their lives their marriage was restored. Their household was brought into a place of, of peace and spiritual health. And we rejoiced on a number of occasions after that that Jesus had delivered. This is the kind of authority that he brings into our world. And these are stories that are not reserved for the first century as if they were somehow more primitive culture and their superstition is what opened the door. Listen, there is a devil that the Bible describes like a roaring lion on the prowl looking for people to devour right now. And he doesn't care if he does it by fear and intimidation in the middle of the night or doing it by sending sinful, immoral temptation your way that, that you latch onto with your mind or that you engage in with your body. He's just bent on destroying any way he can, but Jesus is greater. And against Jesus, these unclean spirits have no choice but to submit. So, this authority is quite remarkable. Now, very quickly, and, and this will wrap up this little sequence. Again, this is all in one day. Jesus not only possesses authority, uh, that, that overturns the dead religious tradition and these demonic spirits that have come to work their destruction. But now look at the story, verse 29, uh, or verse 28. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Well, now he exercises authority over what we'll, we'll just describe as debilitating physical illness. We don't know how long Peter's mother-in-law had been sick with this fever, but she is bedridden, and it's serious. But notice the personal care of Jesus' healing authority and, and its care for sick ones. Mark notes in several locations that Jesus touches sick people. There's a beautiful story at the end of chapter 1. It's probably two weeks away from us now, maybe next Sunday, depending on how uh, all the study and prep goes this particular week. But Jesus actually touches a leprous man 
And then he'll touch a young girl who's actually died and raise her from the dead. He'll touch all kinds of sick people in Nazareth. There's a deaf man who will be healed by the touch of Jesus. A blind man who will recover his sight by the touch of Jesus. There are multiple occasions where sick people come to him and touch him and they are healed. And I love the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who from eternity dwelt in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit comes to earth and he touches People who are broken and hurting, who would never fathom that he loves them so personally. And he receives the touches of others. What a savior. I sometimes try to imagine what it will be when I see him for the first time face to face. And I'm sure that I like every other person in the scriptures who encounters the, the Lord in his glory will be on my face, right? Is that's, that's the first response that most people seem to have when they come into the glorious presence of, of God. But I also believe that based on other stories in the scriptures and encounters with people that there's gonna be touch. I'm anticipating a hug. And I know there are going to be other people in that line, but I hope it'll be a long hug. There'll probably be tears. There'll be a lot of joy. There'll be relief. There'll be a feeling of security. Things we've just never even felt. I mean, we've had little tastes and, and little touches of those things, but just the absolute overwhelming sense of his touch. It's an authoritative touch. It's a personal touch. And all Mark records with respect to Peter's mother-in-law is that Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up. He's imposing his will both on the fever and on uh, that sickbed. And look at what happens. The fever leaves her. And she begins to serve them. So here they are at the end of a very busy Sabbath day. He's been teaching. There's this encounter with the unclean spirit. All of that unfolds. Then they move from the synagogue in Capernaum to to Peter's house. My mother-in-law is sick. You don't know what kind of dialogue fully unfolded there. Jesus touches her, raises her, and and in her perfectly healed condition, she says, "Can can I get you all something? probably puts a meal in front of them and they're enjoying well now the, the work's not done the day's not over mark notes that the that evening at sundown they that is the people of the the town brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons it's just begun you know there's another little thought though that i want to share with you and that is i'm mindful that in calling peter and Andrew to leave their nets and follow Jesus, I'm sure that one of Peter's questions, and maybe his wife's question more than his, uh, what about the household? How are we paying for groceries? If you're not out in the boat casting the nets, um, and you know my mom is really sick, we're likely going to have some medical bills. But Jesus has that covered, doesn't he? He knows exactly what Peter and his family we're going to experience, and yet here is Jesus saying, by my authority, I've got you cared for and covered. 
Isn't that the kind of leader you want to follow? One that you can trust so fully, so completely, that even things that are your human responsibility, and it was, it was Peter's responsibility to care for his household, including his mother-in-law. But Jesus says, I've got you. Follow me. Follow me. Well, the response to Jesus' healing authority is overwhelming. And, and look at how Jesus continues to serve. Verse 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. That must have been quite a scene. But verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You know, these people are modeling for us the very response all of us should be having to Christ in his ministry, in his authoritative ministry. You come to him. You don't stay away. It doesn't matter if you're sick or there's an unclean spirit who's bullying you. It doesn't matter if you've been long a a part of a religious tradition that you know in your soul there's no divine authority in us. In it, some good principles and some well-intentioned people, but there's just nothing in it for me. You come to Jesus, and you bring all of that junk, whether it be your confusion, whether it be your illness, whether it be your fears, whether it even be things that you think if you tell somebody else, like our friend, they'll think you're crazy. Jesus doesn't think you're crazy. He loves you. And so he brings his authority into Capernaum. And Capernaum is turned upside down. And you know, when you and I come to Jesus believing that he is who he said he is and that his teaching is authoritative and we submit our hearts to him and we follow him, he turns our lives upside down. And that's always a good thing. So will you come to him today? I don't know what your particular need is at this moment. Maybe it's something specific right out of this text. You'd say, yep, that's me. I'm just a 21st century version of that. But will you come to him? Will you submit your heart to his preaching and teaching? Will you submit your life to him? And like Peter and Andrew and James and John and many others in the course of this gospel, follow him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are king over all, sovereign over the powers of darkness, sovereign over dead religious tradition, sovereign over every disease and sickness that we might feel, and you have the authority to do as you will. Thank you for your kind and generous call to people like us to come follow you. Would you give us grace to do that? And I ask that you would take your word deep into our hearts at this moment, and that whatever sin you are revealing, we would quickly turn away from, repenting of it, confessing it to you, asking for the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse us and make us whole, that we would exercise our faith in you. You don't call us to have perfect faith. You don't even call us to have great faith. You simply call us to believe in you. Would you cause us to be people of faith and as we see you in your glory to follow hard after you? I want to give you just another moment to pray. Talk to the Lord and listen to him. Will you follow him? Are you counted among his true disciples? 
listen to him and respond. So Father, take now your word, seal it to our hearts, and bring your rich and authoritative blessing to bear upon us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.